0: Somewhere over the rainbow, okay, blue. White. <laughs> All right, enough now. Come on, I'm so I wanted to sing. It's one of my favorite movies.
1: Uh, it's one of my favorite movies too, but that doesn't really inspire me to break out into song. I'm trying to honor the legacy of the man, the myth, Vincent Price. He is probably the most wonderful person in human history, and he's probably rolling in his grave right now. Or chuckling. And, Hello, s- and this sort is,
0: of. <laughs> is The Evil Eye, a podcast about goth movies. I am your co-host, Robert Scavarla. And I am your other co-host, Sam Deegan. And um, if you didn't pick up on My Poor Singing, the movie we are doing, if you are a priceophile, <laughs> is that a good thing to call price fans? Price heads? Price tags? Oh, God. Now he's rolling in his grave, for sure. So we are doing... The abominable, abominable, the abominable Dr. Fibes. <laughs> uh, all right, Elmer Fudd. <laughs> well, how do you say abominable, abominable? Abominable. Okay, well. I'll I, be the one saying the film title of this episode. Okay, so our friendship is founded on Sam pronouncing words correctly every time I mispronounce them, which will probably happen many times in this episode.
1: Well, it's part of your charm. Much, Giallos. much Giallos. like your, uh, your amazing... Karaoke songs that I Giallos will have to
0: with <laughs> stop. <laughs> okay, so we are doing the Abominable Dr. Fives, but this is a podcast about goth movies. So before we get into talking about the wonderful Mr. Price, we need to talk about the rules. Yes. So, and what are the rules, Sam?
1: First of all, I don't necessarily think Abominable Dr. Fives is a goth
0: movie, and you're going to have to sell me on that this episode. I am usually the goth skeptic, and you are the one who is well, always talking swapped. about. Yes, but it's confusing because I am a natural skeptic and I want to argue. Uh, Whereas
1: usually my whimsy gets in the way of my skepticism, but the rules. So if you've never listened to our first episode, that's where the rules come from. You'll have to listen to that one to understand why. But rule number one is embrace the darkness. Rule number two is kill your
0: fear. And rule number three is live for death. Which this movie, or at least the first movie in this uh, Fives series, because we're actually technically doing both. So we're not going to talk as much about the sequel, Fives Rises Again, but we will be talking about it a little bit because the ending is badass and it's Vincent Price and the movie's interesting in parts.
1: And it will allow me to tell my favorite uh, sort of sassy Vincent Price anecdote of all time. Because Vincent
0: Price is very sassy when he's off the set. When he's on the set too, but it depends Uh, on I was going
1: to say, he's sassy in pretty much every movie except for Witchfinder General. And he's also kind of not sassy in The Haunted Palace, which is, he's sort of
0: scary. He wasn't very sassy in some of the film noirs that he was in. Film noir, not film noirs. Is it noirs or noir? Well, technically... Can you pluralize noir?
1: Yes. If you're pluralizing it in the French, both film and noir have to have an S
0: on the end of them. But what about in American? And I mean like American, American, because we don't speak English in America. We fought the English. We speak American in America.
1: Okay, but anyone who's speaking American is likely not referring to film noir. I like how you didn't even argue that point. You just said American. No, nope, I just kept right on going. But God bless the U.S. I would have to disagree with that because... He is exceptionally sassy in things like Otto Preminger's Lara or Fritz Long's uh, While the City Sleeps. where Which he's, is the
0: one where he's the uh, rich man with a girlfriend doing uh, calisthenics. While the, the City Sleeps. <laughs> there we <you> go. <laughs> it's amazing. So Dr. Fibes. Dr. Yes. Fibes is what we're here to talk about. So we should talk about Dr. fives the abominable Dr. Fibes. <laughs> uh, so it was directed by, I mean, obviously it stars Vincent Price, but it was directed by uh, Robert Fuist. Did I pronounce that right? Robert Fust. Foost, okay. Okay. Sorry, you were very close. Directed by Robert Fust, who also directed the wonderful Devil's Reign, among many other things, which I'm sure you would love to talk about. Yeah, we're going to have to do an episode
1: on the Devil's Reign. I am a huge, a huge Star Trek fan, but... Wait, are Satanists like uh, vampires? Where they're always goth? Satanists are automatically goth. Yes. Yeah. So it I has suppose. it has William Shatner turning into a man goat, which is automatically goth.
0: <laughs> and it's got Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> evil Ernest Borgnine, throwing the devil horns. Yes. Yeah. It, and young John Travolta. It's automatically
1: goth. I don't, I don't know if that last one counts towards automatically goth, but
0: well, I don't know. All I know is that this movie is also very good and very goth and we will argue that point you will argue the ep- that point
1: uh <laughs> yes so rubber foost is somebody who i don't think gets enough attention i mean people just sort of associate him with the two Fibes films and with the devil's Reign, but something that we should talk about eventually is Wuthering Heights which is the one of the sort of ultimate
0: goth novels I mean you can't say it's not goth I mean everything it is gothic literature (laughs) besides that and also uh the Kate Bush song yeah well there's that too
1: but so early in his career uh Foost directed an adaptation of Wuthering Heights starring fucking Timothy Dalton as Heathcliff and if that doesn't make you want to
0: set your panties on fire I don't know what will uh, we have a friend who does the most incredible version of the Kate Bush version of Wuthering Heights. So we may have to bring him back for a karaoke rendition to open that episode.
1: Uh, we for sure will shout out to Josh. Yes, please. Um, but wait, also if you're for some reason going to do a Robert Fust marathon for Halloween, you should also watch and soon the darkness, which is one. I, I mean, which I I'm, am, I am aware of, I have not seen, and I've heard good things. It's great. If you like weird sort of foreboding serial killer films, which, you know, is my forte, uh, and soon the darkness followed these two English women who are on vacation bicycling through France and they are in all these sort of like s- tiny little villages and they encounter a serial killer. And as you do in
0: the English countryside, when you just are one French, on the, countryside. Um, French.
1: Yes, when you're in the hostile French countryside and you're English well, speaking, when you're English in French,
0: English, the French are always hostile. Exactly. So, I mean, that's not unusual.
1: Usually, I don't think they try to stalk you and murder you, though. Well,
0: in this movie, they do. Depends on uh, if we're also talking about uh, the French New Extremity. A lot of those, definitely. There's French, crazy French people stalk, uh, stalking people.
1: Very true. What's the
0: one with uh, Vincent Castle and the Nazis, Shaitan, or whatever it is? Yes, that one's not very good. A lot of them are not very
1: good. At some point we will have to do an, an episode on Trouble Every Day, which I think counts yes, as a goth me. film, Come on. but we can talk about how the other uh, new French extremity films are not good. We can do a double episode of Trouble
0: Every Day. Don't and say it. Oh, what did you think I was
1: going to say? I thought you were going to say martyrs
0: <laughs> and then I was going to have to flip the table over. I am not a fan of martyrs myself. Thank God. Okay, so moving on from Robert Foost, the cinematographer here is Norman Warwick, who did some genre films, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Interesting movie. Which
1: is honestly, so I'm a big fan of the very strange late period Hammer films, like Straight On Till Morning is probably in my top 20 favorite films of all time. But Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is also up there because Ralph Bates gives
0: the most fucking insane performance. It's a weird one. It's It's one of those ones I always compare it to. There isn't really a lot about it that's similar, but Dracula 1972 AD. Oh, for sure. Where it has like those weird tonal shifts just all over the place for no reason. uh, That's
1: a film that I think counts as goth just because of the character Johnny Alucard who dresses goth as fuck.
0: Johnny Alucard, okay.
1: Yeah, uh, so for those of you who know Kim Newman, he's a film critic. Uh, He and I have the same birthday. That's a very important fact. Uh, but Just shout out your friends, he, Sam. All of them. He, no, I mean, he and I are sort of professional acquaintances. I'm joking. But I have he, no friends. <laughs> aside from my dog, who's Ripley's looking very sad. Uh, but so Kim Newman did this really great series of Dracula novels that sort of figures what if Dracula didn't die at the end of Stoker's novel. And in the series is incredible, but... Highly recommended. But later in the series, one of the novels it follows the Johnny Alucard character from Dracula AD 1972.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, Yeah. So that character,
0: definitely goth. Well, so Warwick did some interesting things on that. And then he also did another odd film, Son of Dracula, starring Ringo Starr and Harry Nilsson. Son
1: of Dracula is one of those movies that when I first read a description of it, I... It just I your mind to do just it melted doub- out of your nose. Yes, I mean I clearly don't even have words right now. I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago, and just the whole time was
0: so confused about what was happening. I mean, it is a confusing movie for a variety of reasons. It's, the least, not the least of which is that you have two counterculture stars up front and center for most of the movie.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so it's not it's watchable and it's enjoyable and it, it's an experience for sure. I don't think it's a great film, but it kind of tries to do something in the same vein as Phantom of the Paradise. It's it's like Harry Nilsson's musical Dracula, but <laughs> like you you get the sense that while he I think he directed it as well as starring in it. I am unsure. I would have to look it up. Well, you get the sense that whomever directed it was on a shitload of Quaaludes because it doesn't make any goddamn sense. As
0: were most people in that era, but it seems like Warwick was on, especially on a lot of Quaaludes dep- like, based on like the weirder genre films he did, both of those yeah. and Fibes included. But moving on from the behind-the-camera talent to the on-camera talent, we obviously have Vincent Price as the wonderful Dr. Anton Fibes. Oh, oh, wait, but... To your point
1: about people who worked on the film behind the camera and were involved in sort of other weird productions, we forgot to mention Brian Eatwell who is the set designer and you know the set as we'll talk about is the one sets of the most are like yeah, a character one of the most important parts of both Vibes films but Eatwell worked on the man who fell to Earth and he also worked on the TV show The Avengers which Robert Foost directed a bunch of Avengers episodes and brought some of the crew members from the show to work on Fibes.
0: So there's this
1: very weird sort of connection between, you know, this like pop culture phenomena, which is the Avengers, but also has tons of weird elements and all these great sort of like cult and arthouse films.
0: So we have Price as Dr. Anton Fibes, Joseph Cotton as oh, the amazing dr vesalius um caroline munro in one of her first roles where she does not say a word and appears on screen in one two scenes maybe yeah but a it's scene, a, a half still scene?
1: it's a still photograph of her well and the, then at the end as well oh so as a corpse and a still photograph
0: so she does a lot in this movie if you're a fan of caroline Monroe's work
1: yeah speaking of dracula ad 1972 yep which she's also in and is fantastic in
0: So one of the things, one of the reasons I liked Fibes, one of the reasons I like Fibes and why I pushed for this is because it's a horror film that doesn't have good guy protagonist. This wasn't unusual for that era. I mean, this being the era of New Hollywood and people pushing boundaries, both in the United States and England, film changing, the British um, angry young man, the cinema happening around then as well. Um, But Fibes has a villain protagonist because we're following anton fives as he murders every motherfucker in the room
1: and one of the sort of brilliant things about this film is you are 100 behind him murdering everyone you're excited about it
0: there's this whole like push now i don't know what it is it's like this new puritanism that's seeping up in like film criticism and culture writing where everyone's like You can't have bad people in front of the camera. They can't be the protagonist because audiences are too stupid. And it's like, who cares? Who cares? Like, that's not the point of, like, fiction or storytelling. And Fibes is great for that because you don't even get, like, a choice in it. You're going to follow Fibes and you're going to be entertained by all of the batshit crazy stuff he does. Because even if Vincent Price isn't speaking directly and he doesn't, spoiler, because he doesn't have a voice technically, he has a voice but it's not like he's speaking to the camera directly. You're still going to identify with everything he's saying and everything he's doing because he's such a magnetic performer.
1: Yeah. It's amazing to think that his performance is so charismatic when all of his lines are spoken in voiceover, but it's still like his facial acting and even his neck acting is, he just is so incredible. I mean, he's
0: majestic.
1: He is majestic. Uh, uh a couple days ago I got to see Tomb of Lygia uh screened on 35 millimeter, uh with one of the stars sort of randomly in attendance uh, Elizabeth Shepard. Where was this? Uh at the Colonial Theater.
0: Oh, in uh, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania for all yes. of you wonderful Pennsylvanians who listen to us. Uh, yeah,
1: and if you're not local, the Colonial is the theater where the Blob was
0: shot. So it has historical and significance, and now every they do year. a blob fest every year. Yeah. Um, so if you're ever looking for something to do in uh, the suburbs of Philly, there you go. Well, so she was talking a lot about working with him.
1: She did sort of like an intro and then a Q and A, and she was talking about how accomplished of a stage actor he was, and she, how which she wished, absolutely was. Yeah, and how she wished he would get more credit for that. And I think you really see it in this film, and definitely in Theater of Blood, which we'll talk about another day
0: so that was one of the things with um price i think that we addressed in the last episode where it was talking about how he's always seen as kind of a campy actor but he never was above the material even when it's something as overtly silly as something like vibes and or i don't think vibes is silly but on the the surface the the idea of vibes is silly so the basic plot to vibes the abominable dr (laughs) vibes is Dr. Anton Fives um, dies in a car crash. It's a car crash that kills him, right? Yes. So he's actually dead, and his wife dies in surgery. And he blames the surgeons for her death, even though he has no real reason to. So his vengeance—well, okay, so we'll get to that part later. <laughs> so he doesn't have any real reason to blame the uh, doctors, because they did what they could. They tried to save you his wife. You don't
1: know that? Those.
0: I, I mean, I'm clearly on the side of Dr. Fives. Let me Fibes. make my point. He came back from the dead because he loved his wife so much he was going to get vengeance on the people he believed who killed her, which like on the surface is kind of like a little silly. It's absurd. It's absurd. But then you throw in the fact that like he's talking through like a vocoder that he's hooked up to a phonograph machine and he's dressed in garish black robes the entire time with like necklaces hanging off based on 10 plagues from ancient Egypt and the Bible, like everything about this movie sounds like it should be silly. And I understand why people treat it like that, but it's actually like a lot better than that. And that's the point I was trying to make, damn you.
1: There is a lot of pathos, but one of the things I think we have to talk about, at least for a little bit, is that it does follow this pattern that was I don't know if introduced is really the right word but sort of made famous by Agatha Christie's novel and then there were none
0: which, which has an interesting history with title. Yeah, it has a
1: har- so it which and, we won't
0: go into on this episode well, or any episode ever.
1: Yeah, but I mean it it takes a line from a poem which is important because so and then there were none and if you don't feel like reading the novel even though it's great The 1945 version by Renee Clare is amazing, but there are like a million adaptations of this book. Uh, Basically
0: like the first slasher film.
1: Well, it's sort of a proto slasher, but it doesn't, it's not quite as overt as Fibes in following an antagonist, but it sort of brings all of these people together and has this sort of mysterious killer murdering them one at a time. And as the plot unfolds, you learn that they're all guilty of some crime or perceived to be guilty. So they're all kind of not likable. And what makes the novel exciting is you want to solve the mystery. You want to find out who is connecting all of these people and who's killing them. But at the same time, when they're murdered with at least
0: with some of the characters you're like, yeah, I can see that. Which <laughs> so As you kept interrupting me before when I was trying to talk about how silly the movie can appear on its face, all of the doctors who die in this movie, you don't necessarily like feel bad for them. There's maybe one or two characters where you're like, eh, they probably didn't deserve it, but for the most part, like everyone kind of you're happy that they die. Well, most of them are Or you laugh. Because it's very often silly. Or funny, overtly so.
1: Oh, some of the some of the death scenes are just We'll get to
0: your favorite, yes. don't worry.
1: But no, I, I totally agree with you, and I think they're either meant to be comical or the character is so briefly introduced that you
0: don't have any stake in whether the person dies or not. So for example, in the beginning, the film literally opens with a wordless ten minute Rupe Goldbergian style That's setup so to a murder where we see a man in bed laying in like a red room and suddenly, like, the lights to the ceiling, the light in the ceiling suddenly screws off and we just see bats fly into the room. The cutest bats you've ever seen I'm because they're flying foxes them. who murder the man to death.
1: I'm sorry, but a fruit bat could not murder anyone except for maybe a piece of fruit.
0: He can murder my heart because well, that he's too. so cute yeah they, which are they are adorable you get these close-ups of these cute little bats and you're like, just like oh they're like
1: snuggled up next to him on
0: his pillow <laughs> they just wanted to be friends like, and they then could he comes snuggle on my pillow anytime but the point is the opening to the movie is kind of goofy but in a fun way
1: Sure. And I think what it does, which the opening of Theatre of Blood also does, the opening of Madhouse does, is they they introduce what the formula is. And so in this case, as you said, the formula is this absolutely batshit insane ten plagues of Egypt. That's how we're gonna kill people. Like, what does that have to do with his wife's death or the surgical team? It has fuck all to do with those things. It's but it's biblical. cool as shit. It's-
0: biblical and he's going to punish them with the Bible as every Catholic school has done to the children who've gone through it. Well, also, so to the point
1: of something you said earlier, I have been watching this film for 20 years now and I never really gave much thought to the question of did he die in the car crash or was he just injured and escaped so that he could fake his own death and... And I think it's equally valid to assume
0: that either one is true because the movie does not. I didn't think he was dead until it was something you had mentioned in some discussion we had previously.
1: Yeah, because I came across that recently where somebody just was so convinced that like he died and came back from the dead.
0: Well, so at the end of the film, there's the famous scene where he tears his face off. Yeah. Which is like, so I guess we should like make some points about who Fibes is and like, how he accomplishes all of these crazy murder scenes. So, Fibes is a mad organist. He has like you do multiple like doctorates in one of them's like musicology, musicology theology, and theology. Uh, but somehow his degree in musicology means he knows like he's a genius at acoustics. An, so he's an able, engineering seemingly. An engineering. So he's able to rig like a proto vocoder for himself to plug into his neck, and this being 1920s England. The,
1: everything, this movie is so difficult. Like, I can't really imagine anyone being interested in our show while also not having seen this
0: movie yet, but it's so... No, I, I can believe it, absolutely, because I don't think anyone under the age of, like, 35 still, like, references Dr. Fives on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, but it's so difficult to talk about to someone who's never seen it because all these things that we're saying sound like utter nonsense it's like staring at the
0: face of god it is vincent price is god especially in this movie well this is true after the murder of the man by cute bats because death by bat is my way to go personally well and that's the first curse the curse of blood so yes do we want to go through the curses sure we can since you know i don't think too many people are probably up on the 10 plagues it's not yeah. something that really comes up in conversation if, that often. If
1: you're extremely well-versed in the 10 plagues of Egypt, now's a good time to go make yourself a sandwich and come back in a minute. Uh,
0: so, <laughs> so, <the laughs> so let's go through them, Sam. So
1: the first is the plague of blood. The second, frogs. The third, lice. The fourth, <laughs> which is my personal favorite, which we'll discuss later, wild beasts. The fifth, pestilence. The sixth, boils or some kind of skin disease. The seventh is hail. The eighth is locusts, which I believe is your favorite. Yes. The ninth is darkness, which is the most badass. And the 10th is the slaying
0: of the firstborn. So we get the first one, uh, which was blood. And then we are introduced to fives proper as he is dressed in all black robe, conducting a band and playing a uh, war march of the priests on an organ, which to me is goth as fuck
1: yeah i have to sort of concede to that point especially his cape it's not just like a black cloak it it's this strange almost like vinyl material where it just flows yeah everywhere he goes whoever made these costumes they are so incredibly beautiful
0: but the band he's conducting is also like a proto-devo because they all look like a uh, bougie boy which is the funniest part and they're known as dr fives clockwork wizards
1: well because they're they're not so if you haven't seen the film they're not people playing these instruments they're all sort they're of clockwork men, like Devo. machine
0: robots yeah craft work i guess depending on which late 70s you know but robot band you want to talk about but
1: they're actual robots they're, they're actual not robots. they're not people who wish they were robots
0: he does that and then we are introduced to his assistant the beautiful volnavia who volnavia. i love
1: so much
0: uh, who is the actress that played Uh
1: Virginia North, who really most of her career is in in modeling, and she doesn't actually have a single line of dialogue in this film, which really is another one of the many confusing elements. But I think Not really just, she's a robot. She's a, I robot, like
0: she's else. a robot. I don't think she's a robot. No, in, she is. Okay, so she
1: absolutely is. Until we talked about this recently. It never even occurred to me that Volnavio was a robot. I mean, Why she's Why would he just perfect? have this
0: wordless woman slave, like, doing all of his stuff for him? Where do you find someone like that? Okay, so I... Uh, it's a serious question I want to know.
1: I have given this way too much thought, and so... Just put an ad in back pages, or... Well, so I had sort of two thoughts. One of them was... Maybe she's his wife's sister or a f- some sort of female relative or friend and is helping him get revenge. You just made up this whole
0: backstory for the I, movie.
1: <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about this movie. <laughs> and So
0: she's a robot. God damn it. The clockwork band is also robots. She's a robot. She's, she's a just robot. a better robot. She's, she's a hotter robot. She's not just a robot. She's a lady. Yes. <laughs> Which if you haven't seen the movie, that will make no sense to you. No. Um, the movie has this weird sort of logic to it where there is no logic. Things, scenes just kind of move along to the next murder. So from there, we move into Fives going to an elaborate costume masquerade ball. The frogs. And death by frog. Now, you would think that would be creepy, but here it's actually kind of surreal and weird because of the way it's shot. So Fives yeah. locks a uh, mask, a frog mask, onto a man's head. Well, and that's
1: what's so interesting about the way that the film deals with the 10 plagues is it sort of says, okay, we can't have this be sort of a literal act of God where somebody's going to be stampeded by wild beasts or somebody's going to be eaten by frogs. Jumped to death by frogs cuz frogs <laughs> don't eat people, but you can make them eat people.
0: I guess it's a horror movie. They can do whatever you want.
1: I guess. Uh, I mean, if Patrick Bateman can make that rat eat his way out of a live woman, I guess someone theoretically could train frogs to eat people. But yes, this movie, one of the things I love about it is that it takes these sort of light hearted, whimsical approaches to murder, to meeting this sort of list of plagues and saying, OK.
0: We see how that's written down on paper, but what does that look like? See, I think this movie just knows the Bible is silly and is like, you know what? It we is. can't really, like, we can't take things literally from the Bible. So we're just going to make the silliest possible death scenes we can, or which are also super stylish. Or we're going to take them literally in a surreal way. Which this is because as the man is dying, you have a masquerade party happening around him where people just don't kind of notice he's dying until he's dead on the ground.
1: Well, it happens so fast and everyone's so taken aback. They don't understand. Is he choking? Does he need the Heimlich? Like why is his mask crushing
0: his head to death? From there, we then move into what might be my favorite scene in the movie with, um, the character Dr. Longstreet, played by the wonderful Terry Thomas of its uh, mad, 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 mad mad
1: world. Terry Thomas is one of my favorite comedians in general, but one of my favorite sort of like character actors from this period. And I fucking love that he shows up again
0: in the The sequel sequel. as a totally different character. (laughs) But here he has the best scene in the movie. He steals the show by watching a nudie reel of a woman licking snakes. And it just...
1: He's so kind of bashful about it and like furtive when his his housekeeper comes home and catches him in the act.
0: You know, it's <laughs> not like one of those things where you just get caught by your mom watching porn because you're watching it on your laptop. He has to set up an entire screen and then put like the reel onto uh, a projector so he can play this thing. So you would expect you would have to expect that like someone would catch him doing this. <laughs> he didn't think this through though and his maid walks in, which Leads to a hilarious interaction. And if you watch the movie, this is a scene you definitely need to pay attention to.
1: Uh, yeah, but it's, I mean, yeah, we, so we, we, I feel like we shouldn't spell everything out in case somebody hasn't seen it or hasn't seen it in a long time. Oh, no, I mean, we haven't given away everything.
0: Like no. there are still flourishes that, you know, we haven't touched on.
1: It, the comedy
0: is just so perfect though. And you well, really and it's played straight, which is part of what makes it work. Terry Thomas is uh, Dr. Longstreet, <laughs> the character. <laughs> just the way he like the prim proper way he just addresses his maid after she discovers him and the way she, you know, kind of like gives him a little wink, like, Hey buddy, like, I know what's going on. I here.
1: know what you're about to do there. Yeah. And, and she's like, now you eat your dinner,
0: Dr. Longstreet. <laughs> <laughs> Basically treating him like a mother who just found her son watching porn. Yeah. It's the best. So from that point, we kind of get to the meat of the movie when we meet one of, uh, what will be one of Fibes' main targets, and probably the worst character in the movie, Dr. Vesalius' son. Oh. At first I thought you were going
1: to say Dr. Vesalius is the worst character in the movie, no. and I was about to be
0: upset. Because even when Joseph Cotton is like stumbling through a movie just bored out of his mind, he's still entertaining or He's good. still Joseph Cotton. Yeah. yeah. No, so Dr. Vesalius' son is essentially a man-child. <laughs> like he's <laughs> a child- But he's a man child. come
1: play chess with me,
0: father. And that's actually how he talks in the movie, which makes it so goddamn ridiculous because he's at least 25, the actor.
1: Uh, Yeah, and I know that I have like a little bit of a man voice, but his voice is like several octaves
0: higher than mine. (laughs) It's kind of impressive. So when you meet him, you immediately want him to die just because you know he's the type of character that he he's a setup. Sati- he's he's there solely because he's going to be a target or he's going to get offed, which makes, unfortunately, the ending not as fulfilling and satisfying as it should be.
1: Yeah, because well, we shouldn't say we won't get there just yet. Yes, what you know? What we should talk about now your is favorite my da- favorite kill scene. So why don't you talk <laughs> about your favorite kill scene? What what plague does it address? Wild beasts and. What happens is. What happens? What happens is one of my favorite characters, Inspector Trout, who all of the police in both of these films, and Inspector Trout actually comes back for the sequel, thankfully, uh, they sort of play up this British comedic type of the
0: sort of bumbling police officer. Well, it's not just British. I mean, it's like a Keystone Cop, is essentially what it is. But he's a competent Keystone Cop, which is weird. He is. He's
1: good at his job and is a likable person he's one
0: of the only sort of likable protagonists in the film he he is basically like the primary like so when you the doctors you don't want to see die or like you just are like oh well they probably didn't deserve it it's more that you don't know enough about them and they're just kind of boring they're just there my favorite death scene happens to one of those doctors whereas Um, Inspector Trout is just genuinely entertaining. He's so entertaining
1: and he's sort of unlike in a lot of these films, especially the kind of British cop type that is transported over in the 30s to the universal horror films where they're just bumbling morons. He knows how to do his job, but is kind of a victim of these insane circumstances. And well, he also
0: recognizes that everyone else around him is incompetent or insane. Totally. And, uh, and that's Fibes, what makes it's him just, better. I think he's as much amused by what's happening around him and the things that Fibes is doing as he is, like, frustrated.
1: Well, so in this scene, they managed to track down. So by this point in the film, they figured out that it's everybody who worked with Vesalius and was part of the surgical team on. Victoria Fibes' operation. And so they now have the full list of doctors. They've found this one doctor, and they're taking him into prote- uh, protective <laughs> custody. And he's at his gentleman's club, and so they go into the club, and everyone sort of looks at them like, why are you making all this goddamn noise? And they explain, we have to take you into custody. We'll We'll tell you why on the way. And he steps towards the door, and that fast, a fucking catapult launches a brass unicorn bust that goes straight through his chest and <laughs> impales him. And it is the, the, the looks on everyone's faces. Like all of these people are such accomplished performers <laughs> and their comic timing is uh,
0: incredible. Just the fact that there was a death by catapult in the movie. Unicorn catapult. Unicorn catapult <laughs> is the do band name for a West Philly like folk punk band. Just so oh. you're aware as it should be just the fact that there's a death by catapult in this movie made in the 70s set in the 20s is what puts it over the top (laughs) so Uh, we did your favorite death scene i guess i guess we should get to your turn because this is one of those movies where you kind of relish the uh ludicrous ludicrousness of the death scenes and you really enjoy watching them so you do there is uh one female doctor because she's a nurse oh i disregard i was gonna say yay for feminism but disregard
1: well no i was gonna say it's 70s england there are no female doctors get your life together sorry (laughs) england was
0: bad we'll settle with that um so the one female character in the movie ends up getting murdered which i guess is like a good thing for equality i don't know
1: but they give her a really spectacular death scene
0: yeah so she's the one character she's like the one because she's not a doctor she's not an asshole and they all kind of talk down to her and they give her medication to sleep because she's like, he's coming after me, you guys. What the fuck?
1: Well, she also, so the problem with, and I think this is totally understandable from a script perspective, the problem is that everyone, all the surviving members of the surgical team refused to take it seriously.
0: Well, and would you really believe that like someone got murdered by frog? Someone got bats. murdered by catapult? Come on.
1: Yeah, but with her, she's the the second to last person on the list. So I well, think she's like, okay, you could put me into protective custody. Yeah, she's like eight deep at this yeah. point. So
0: <laughs> they put her under because she's hysterical or she's not, but no, then like you've been asleep. Well, the I think the issue is
1: they have her under guard, but She's working at a hospital, so they don't take her back to her house. They just give her a room in the hospital. hospital, Yes, and so the sleeping pills are just supposed to help her kind of pass the night.
0: So as she's sleeping, um, Fibes once again unscrews the ceiling because that's something that that's just how it works. Drills a hole in the ceiling. He drills a hole in the ceiling, unscrews it, and drops like sugar onto her liquid sugar. Yeah, it's like some sort of green sugar. It's like some
1: sort of sugar cabbage syrup. (laughs) Cabbage. well there's something green in it i think it's supposed to be some kind of vegetable
0: yes so she's asleep this entire time because the pills have knocked her out and slowly it covers her entire face and then he lets out the locusts so the woman's face is eaten by locusts and we get a great like cut gag where we see her face entirely eaten and it's just a skeleton it's so good so that is my favorite because it's probably the most ludicrous, even more so than the uh unicorn catapult. Well,
1: so the the murders are ludicrous in different ways. Some of them, like the sequence with the nurse and the locust, is just so improbable that he would be able to do that without her
0: being waking up or anything yeah, happening. Yeah. Or
1: like the and and it's the scene Robert Foost does such a good job with these sort of moments because he, he lets the scene unfold at its own pace and doesn't just show this sort of clip montage, but shows you this kind of painstaking process of Fibes putting these tubes through the ceiling and dripping yes. out this fluid and then forcing the locusts into the tube. And it just
0: <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's an amazing setup and an amazing payoff. But then we get to the end of the film, sadly. Sadly. So... Joseph Cotton's character, Dr. Vesalius, and Inspector Trout are trying to figure out which one's going to be next because there's two plagues left. There is uh, the firstborn and there's darkness. So Vesalius being the narcissist that he is because he's a doctor and all doctors are narcissists. Especially in this film,
1: but also in life. Yes, I work in a hospital.
0: Believes that he is next because he would be next on the list, but he's not a firstborn. So he thinks he's safe. So they assume it's going to be darkness. Well, they also
1: fudge the list a little bit, because if you look at the actual sort of biblical list of the 10 plagues, the curse of darkness is nine. I don't think they're concerned with
0: accuracy.
1: (laughs) I know, but they follow the list pretty closely so far. And we didn't mention it, but Fibes has these amulets, these Hebrew amulets, uh, Designed and crafted to match with each of the killings, which is
0: ultimately how they discover he is the one doing it as well. Because, as is the case in all great caper films, someone leaves something by mistake and that is their undoing.
1: Well, it's sort of his undoing because, well, okay, so he
0: doesn't go punished in this movie. No, it's wonderful, but that's how they discover he is the one doing it. So they are deciding. Who will be next when they realize, oh my God, Dr. Vesalius, you have a son. You have a man-child. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, Fibes has kidnapped the man-child and has set up a scenario in which Dr. Vesalius has to operate on his own son. Now that's poetry. It's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, um, the ultimate goal of having acid fall onto the man-child's face is not accomplished because Dr. Vesalius does his job. This time sadly yes and, and instead volnavia is yeah, the one who gets it
1: but volnavia comes back in the next film so but it's, it's not totally fine no because virginia north was pregnant well i mean
0: that does happen occasionally i guess it's an inconvenience but what can you do so <laughs> <laughs> after the uh after visalia saves his son Fives escapes and we get the actual darkness the plague of darkness where he casts himself into eternal slumber as he embalms himself in a mirrored coffin with his dead wife's corpse next to him.
1: It's so good. It also, yeah, I guess between the organ playing and the embalming yourself alive in a mirrored coffin next to your dead wife, I mean, it's goth. It's also the most romantic
0: story ever. It also, so when we get to the end of the film, it also highlights one of the other weird things about this, which is that the series doesn't like both films have these weird occult and astrological references that they don't fully commit to but are just there because it was the late it was the early 70s it's great window dressing though it's like w- with the use of color in this movie and the weird like astrology and occult references it's almost like someone was really hopped up on like kenneth anger movies like they watched invocation of my demon bro was that out yet yes i think yes. by this point point. and but specifically inauguration of the pleasure dome and we're like Let's just do that. Come on, guys.
1: Yeah, it, it is very sort of Age of Aquarius kind of assumes the that you won't be weirded out it. by yeah. all of these occult symbols.
0: But it also feels some of, like some of that old school like pagan Hollywood stuff that you would see yeah. in like, the 20s and 30s as well. Yeah, and I think
1: it's one of the many elements that allows you to say, okay, we didn't really get much exposition in this film. There's no explanation for why he's alive or how he's able to do what he's doing, but they're occult symbols, so maybe he's using some kind of black magic.
0: And that is the abominable Dr.
1: Fibes. I mean, it's just as plausible as any other explanation.
2: (laughs) This October, the Cinepunks Podcast group invites you to our annual celebration of all things spooky. Cinepunks. From October 1st to October 31st, Cinebox.com is your home for having scares and for phobias. New writing, special podcast episodes, Patreon-exclusive content, all to make you feel seasonally creepy. Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars in this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Perhaps it was inevitable. For years, Vincent Price has played the role of Dr. Death. For years, he has pretended to be a hideous, murdering monster. Now, he has actually become one. American International presents Vincent Price in Madhouse. Madhouse, where lunacy lives, fear lurks evil walks and death waits. Ah! Madhouse, an endless nightmare from which there is no return. Ah! Madhouse, a cinematic shock treatment guaranteed to scare you out of your mind. Ah! No one ever leaves Madhouse. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested.
0: And that was the abominable Dr. Fibes. See, I got it right there. You didn't. So moving on to, I I don't have to say it in the title of this one. Damn it. So moving on to Fibes Rises Again.
1: Where he's almost equally abominable, although not really. Because the the No, the
0: abominable character (laughs) is someone else.
1: And boy, am I happy to see Robert Quarry.
0: I was going to say, why don't you introduce Mr. Quarry, since you are the fan. Not that I'm not, but...
1: Well, so part of my love for Robert Quarry relates to the antagonism between he and Vincent Price in real life. and They did not get along. No, they didn't Spoiler. like each other. Well, so part of the problem is Robert Quarry was basically, and after we talk about Dr. Fibes, we'll have to go into AIP and what their sort of deal was, but at this particular period, AIP was starting to run out of money and they were trying to come up with different ways to sort of boost their horror production. And so Robert- so they
0: were what, like almost 10 films into using price at this point. Had they done like the full more series? More than 10 films. I meant like the Poe series, the 10 Poe films. Yeah, that was well over by this point. So, but, so Price had kind of, it's not that he had worn out his welcome, it's just that they had used him so much, there was that overexposure where he was now regarded as a camp actor in the 70s. No,
1: I don't think, I would argue against that completely. Really? I So I think the problem is that he was getting older, and that they wanted somebody to fit in kind of... A similar role, but who was younger and was a little bit more able to do the kind of stunts. They wanted
0: the younger, shinier version.
1: They wanted the younger, shinier version. And so they were grooming Robert Quarry to sort of be the new Vincent Price. But like, you can't fucking be the new Vincent Price. There's only one Vincent Price.
0: And you can't do that in the same movie with Vincent Price because Vincent Price will not allow it. No. And so this was after Quarry had done um, another film. Count Yorga. Which is wonderful. vampire therapist yes vampire cult leader
1: (laughs) count yorga there is a two film series and that was sort of part of aip's effort to sort of get the kids yeah to kind of break out of the mold of what they thought was sort of stuffy conservative horror and to update it because at that point most vampire films were period pieces set in the 1900s and so Hammer said, okay, we'll do Dracula A.D. 1972 and we'll have some fucking hippies in it and worshiping Satan. And
0: so what does AIP do?
1: AIP said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get into this black exploitation market with Blackula <laughs> and they made two Blackula films, both of which are amazing. Yes. Uh, and they made two Count Yorga films, but they then tried to slide Robert Quarry in with Vincent Price, which they did on Dr. Fibes' Rises again, and they also did on Madhouse, which we'll talk about another time
0: and initially this was conceived of fives rises again was conceived of as dr fives versus count Yorga as one of the possibilities for what this movie would have been which would have been pretty sick i have to say which would have been ridiculous because i can't imagine
1: it's what Price came out with is ridiculous vincent
0: price is already going pretty hard in this movie i can't imagine how much crazier he would have been competing with robert corey in a movie where he's facing off with like corey's premier character
1: well, and that's the thing that you have to consider.
0: So is... do you want to get into your story? Oh, yes. Because so... this is this is why we are talking about this movie mostly.
1: <laughs> because I love this story so much. So there apparently is something that happened on set where for some reason Robert Quarry was singing. I don't know karaoke. Maybe yeah. Maybe they
0: were just doing karaoke like I was. Who
1: knows? But basically this even could have been on the set of madhouse where i do think he's singing at a birthday party
0: or something i mean there is there is that scene in that movie yes
1: so in between takes i guess vincent price walks past him and robert quarry says well i bet you didn't know i could sing and without batting an eyelash (laughs) vincent (laughs) price says i didn't know you could act (laughs) So yes,
0: Price was not amused by the fact that he was trying to be replaced. But like nobody can get in a zinger like Vincent Price. I mean, between... no, I mean, I think we illustrated that last episode with the uh, boning a fish line.
1: <laughs> I forgot we included that. <laughs>
0: Vincent Price had a very quick wit. If he was not a famous actor, he could have made a career out of Hollywood Squares or as a game show host or oh, any of those totally things. he totally could have. He would have been above those things, but he could have done it like the best that ever did
1: well i mean even somebody like johnny carson i think you have to have a certain amount of comic talent
0: but to be able to like match up to him
1: oh totally and to do that every night with all different kinds of performers so yeah I, i mean i i do think he's somebody who like you said earlier never considered any material beneath him so it's sort of rare to hear these stories where you could (laughs) where you could feel him looking down on someone and you can feel it and it's part of what makes Dr. Fibes Rises Again so
0: enjoyable is because you can they're they're just so much animosity so Vincent Price returns as um, Dr. Anton Fibes and Robert Quarry plays his nemesis Darius Bierbeck Ageless explorer who is pursuing the river of life, which as a setup for like a villain or antagonist is kind of like, where the fuck did you come up with that? And it's not that like, so this movie also has a theme to its deaths, which is themed through Egypt is just more general. Yeah. And that's it's just coming from ancient uh, mythology.
1: But I think that's what makes this film less accomplished than the first fives is that it doesn't really have that sort of elaborate attention to detail. It doesn't stick to this sort of plot structure. It just has this kind of general, okay, they're both trying to get this papyrus.
0: Well, so from what I understand, the movie, um, had some issues in production. There were multiple scripts, which they just kind of cobbled together thinking that would work. So as you're watching it, you can kind of see jarring tonal shifts between different characters who don't really interact with other characters and things that don't make sense i mean not that like the first movie made sense but it had like its own weird dream logic to it where you could follow it here things just kind of randomly randomly. happen
1: yeah so it's really frustrating because you you can read about how the film's producers Sort of forced this other screenwriter on Robert Foost, who wrote the scripts for both films. Yeah. And I think that is where you see that clash you were talking about, where it just, it's like somebody who doesn't know Fibes trying to write a Fibes story.
0: Someone, I don't think too many people know Fibes. Like, well, There are two of them, Robert Fust and yeah, Vincent Price. Vincent Price, this is true. Um, trying to shoehorn a third So we do get, so we mentioned Quarry and Price, but there is another cameo in this film who the original idea for Peter Beck Peter Cushing oh Peter
1: Cushing so yeah Peter Cushing and this is a sad story but at the time Peter Cushing was sort of dealing with the illness and death of his longtime beloved wife Helen and so he went through a little bit of a period where he wasn't acting as much and he was supposed to be in that role, and they would have been great together. And so he's able to come back in Madhouse and kind of have that sort of interaction with Price. And the two of them loved each other so much.
0: Well, the sparring wouldn't have been as entertaining, at least. The stories, the set stories wouldn't have been as fun.
1: Sure. And I mean, there are some people who say, and I think this is mostly coming from the producers who say, oh, you know, we didn't know that there was any... The quarrel
0: between them and it's like okay mm. come on come don't on. lie to a bitch you can <laughs> see it so the plot to this movie beyond biederbeck looking for the river of life is price is back as fives because he is also pursuing the river of li- river of life to resurrect his dead wife victoria and who wouldn't want to resurrect caroline monroe because come on sure and that
1: actually one of the things that I do like so much about this film is that it, of course, brings back vibes. It brings back Victoria, um, which again is a Carolyn Monroe cameo, as you said. It brings back Volnavia, even though it's a different actress. And it brings back like three people from the first film. I mean, uh, in different characters. Well, so Inspector Trout is the same. Well,
0: I'm referring to Terry Thomas.
1: But yeah, fucking Terry Thomas is so good in this he's just as good he and trout are just as good in this uh and i believe trout is played by hugh griffith who is another pretty recognizable british actor if you watch a lot of sort of films from this period
0: i mean a lot of the actors in both of these movies are recognizable if like if you've watched british movies from that era like you can kind of like get a sense like they've been in things that you've seen, even if you don't remember the faces specifically from where.
1: Definitely. And that actually, after we talk about, uh, after we finish talking about this film, we should talk about the situation of why this is an American production, but it's shot in England. But we can get to that in a minute. But they speak English in this movie. They don't speak American. Well, Vincent Price always speaks English. He doesn't speak American. He
0: wouldn't lower himself to that. No. No. (laughs) <laughs> what is your favorite death scene in this movie i know for me specifically it's the scorpion scene because yeah. it's kind of ridiculous in that it seems like analogous to a number of other like killer creature scenes that happen in 70s and 80s movies the one it reminded me the most of for some reason even though it's not as gory is the beyond where you have the, tarantula the scene because in that scene you just have tarantulas tra- tarantulas crawling all over a man. Whereas here, he just lets the scorpions like consume him basically, like just walk all over him. Which is hilarious
1: because tarantulas cannot kill you. Like their venom is not strong enough unless you have some sort of allergy or like a heart condition. And With most scorpions, certainly they're lethal scorpions. But I think the scorpions used here are emperor scorpions, which which are it's they have the same amount of venom as a tarantula.
0: They're just like the cute little bats in the first movie. They are adorable scorpions.
1: Oh, actually, I think my favorite death scene is the hawk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a very majestic hawk as well. I know I said uh, Price was majestic, but the hawk is as well.
1: Well, he would have to have a animal companion that yes. is
0: of his stature <laughs> so do you want to describe the scene because it's pretty good no because i think you should be surprised by it fair enough and i think that should bring us to the end because the best thing about this movie i think is the ending at least for me it's, it's amazing. a great way to wrap it up um so there's this parallel between beaterbeck and fives and that they both have wives and they're they contrast each other Fibes is pursuing the river of life to resurrect his dead wife, whereas Biederbeck is a complete dick to his wife and is only pursuing it for himself. But inexplicably, at the end, Price forces Biederbeck to make a choice. Let your wife die or pursue the river of life. And for some reason, even though he's been a dick the entire time, Biederbeck chooses his wife. So I guess he isn't a totally bad guy.
1: Well, I think he is a totally bad guy, but... The when they were writing the script, they had to come up with a way for Fibes to win, and because so, he should win. Oh, he totally should win. And I, I mean, if you like sort of Egypt-themed horror movies, this is well worth watching. It, the, I sort of have a soft spot for them, even though many of them are not good. The I like them movies, anyway. Many of
0: them are not. All of the sequels that are not tied to the original are not good.
1: Oh my God, that take place in fucking Boston and there's like a random swamp in Boston. That's not a thing. I've been rewatching them lately and oh my God. <laughs> Some of them are so bad. I a couple of years ago, I watched them all in order in one weekend. It was like, I never want to see another mummy ever again. Why would you do that to yourself? I don't know, because I'm a masochist.
0: So this ends, Beaterbeck. Um, chooses his wife, Fibes locks him out of the river of life. And we get uh, the really cool, like picture of Dorian Gray sequence where, um, who is like a thousand years old, if I remember right. Yeah. Slowly ages as we keep cutting back to him as Fibes rides away into the sunset on a lake with his wife singing somewhere. Okay. I'm not going to do it,
1: (laughs) but I, I think it's important to know two things. The first is sort of what was going on with Price's career at this time. And the second is who AIP were and what they were trying to do. So So why don't we go into that? Yeah. So Price's career at this time is really starting to wind down. But he does this interesting thing through AIP who basically start... For financial reasons, working with this company called Anglo Amalgamated, who are a Brit- a smaller British studio, and they start doing these co-productions. So from the late 60s to kind of the mid-70s, almost all the films Price was in are films with British sets, like set in England with cast and crew members, oftentimes with British directors. But they're technically... Either American films or co-productions because they are AIP productions. I mean... So they're trying to compete with Hammer. Exactly. But their films are a bit weirder. I mean this what,
0: film, for example.
1: Sure. But what kicks it off is Witchfinder General, the Michael Reeves film in 1968, which isn't a weird film. It's just a great,
0: dark film. It's
1: incredibly dark. Uh And films that we will have to talk about at some point, like the Oblong Box, which is a weird film, Scream and Scream Again, which is the weirdest shit ever. Yes. Uh, Cry of the Banshee, which is amazing. Oh, it's so good. If you've never seen Cry of the Banshee, it's one of those, it's witches so, get
0: revenge.
1: Yeah, it's sort of oh, you folk are nerds. Yeah, it's a witch hunting film that says, What if the witches are real and not just these kind of defenseless women? and they got pissed and they got some revenge, and it's great. But it's just sort of interesting to see him have a chance to be in these maybe more serious British productions where he's put up against really talented actors who are all also committed to the material like yes pretty much the last two big films of his career theater of blood and madhouse we'll talk about later but there, yeah they're another example of this but so the reason that AIP thought this was a good idea is they were sort of they had a corner on pretty much
0: the american horror film market well not just the american horror film market the american youth market for the most part in the late 60s specifically they um had they were one of like the big uh trip movie like companies they did all of like the counterculture films they were responsible for pretty much corman was responsible for launching the careers of almost every major new hollywood director from that era who had worked on his films on you know like the trip And other productions that he had done so he'd given them work in genre films and he had cornered the market essentially doing all kinds of like amazing work that he doesn't really get known for today but specifically with what you're saying with the horror films um they were just so unusual for that era in part because i think a lot of them were directed at the youth market
1: Yeah. And that's what makes AIP, uh, American International Pictures, in case I didn't say, it's what makes them so fascinating is because from sort of the mid 50s to the mid 70s, they have such a corner on American cult cinema in in a way where they innovate all these subgenres and they start buying international films to distribute them. like Unfortunately, butchering some of them in the process. Yes, but at least people could see them. I mean, they purchased almost Mario Bava's entire catalog and unfortunately gave some of them new scores and recut some of them, but it still was a chance for people to see those Italian films that they never would have
0: seen otherwise. But didn't, didn't they do that with some of their own films? I, wasn't Witchfinder General, they recut it as The Conqueror Worm? With the new prologue to make it a Poe film?
1: Well, they tried to sort of tenuously connect it. It's not really recut. It just has some of the violence toned down and it has a new title. Right. I I, I
0: saw it once and I was confused. I actually saw that before I saw Witchfinder General. And then I saw Witchfinder General and I was like, wait, this is the same movie?
1: Well, it doesn't make any sense because like the Conqueror Worm is, it's actually my favorite Poe poem, but... It's not a story like you can't make a feature out of that fucking poem. Well, they tried, they tried with
0: the Raven. (laughs) So they tried more than once. One of them was partially successful.
1: But so what I love so much is so the, the sort of three main figures of AIP, of course, Roger Corman, who we talked about uh, in the last episode, even more so, but producers, James Nicholson and Samuel Arkoff
0: who whose names if you see arkoff's name on anything it's usually entertaining
1: yeah and it's like they did everything from like you said those trip movies to the wild angels and all the sort of Biker motorcycle movies. spin-off movies they created one of my favorite subgenres the beach party film which they which are I'm delightful not as high on.
0: well more for me i hate hippies but i love hippie exploitation movies so i will lean on that yeah i mean hallucination generation watch it yeah they
1: just you could have a podcast where all you did was talk about aip films because they have so many of them
0: i feel like someone's done that before i know there's at least 40 canon podcasts out there so there's got to be at least one aip
1: I would hope so. I mean, some of their titles, like if you're ever bored and you feel like you've seen every horror film or you just want something new and crazy, just even if you just go on Wikipedia and look at a list of AIP films, there are titles in there that you're like, what? What the hell is this? And how have I never heard of it? Even they among have the Vincent Price stuff. movies.
0: Yes. They have so many strange films that they've made throughout the course of like their existence that it's. Anyone who says they've seen like all the horror movies is a moron. I hate them. Yeah. Well, that person's an idiot, but But to your point, AIP is especially like if you're looking to jump between genres as well, like they never like focused on one thing. They were always looking for that next trend. They were chasing that next, you know, box office hit. So they were immersed in trying to chase youth culture and the counterculture and anything that would make a buck. So they created so many weird, distinct movies that it's hard to not be entertained by something that they created and not like to not be amazed that like, oh, my God, what is this? I can't believe this thing exists.
1: Well, and so part of the reason why they're so successful is because of Samuel Arkoff's formula, his patented formula. Oh, my God, what is this? Which I think is one of the most hilarious things I have ever heard. How, how,
0: how did he make a formula? Like, is there, is it based on letters? Uh, you (laughs) know, it is. What are the letters? The
1: the letters are R A R K O F F. What was that spell? He had to spell out his own name as part
0: of this formula, which (laughs) it's like, he's the count from, um, Sesame street, just spelling out his own name with various totally. So what, what does each letter stand for in the Arkoff formula?
1: Okay. So a is for action. Okay. Pretty straightforward. R is, this is the craziest one. R is for revolution,
0: which in like the hippie movies, maybe.
1: Yeah. And I mean, wild in the Straits. Sure. And even to a different degree, some of the other, some of the weirder horror films,
0: I suppose, that
1: have kind of like loosely counter, countercultural themes, but definitely not Done with Dr. Fibs. <laughs> Yeah. Dunwich Horror, but not Dr. Five. I
0: mean, that's the only like hippie horror crossover I can think of that they did off the top of my head. Uh, well, so K, Killing. Well, that's... There has to be killing in these films. I mean, that should be in any good film.
1: Although I don't think there's any killing in the Beach Party films. So although there, there are some... There has to be at
0: least one movie called Beach Party Massacre.
1: I wish, but there's one called The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, which is the best thing ever.
0: The Frankie and Annette movie, right?
1: They're all Frankie and Annette movies. Uh, I've never seen any of them, so. Oh, well... Oh, just you wait! <laughs> oh no, I spoke too soon. Um, so the O stands for oratory, by which, <laughs> by which he means he wants there to be really memorable dialogue, which the Fives films definitely have, like people just making insane speeches and having these great one-liners.
0: They were always good about finding actors that could do that too, or giving chances to actors to deliver those opportunities. Oh,
1: definitely. Uh, the first F is for fantasy. Yeah, that's, I mean, they were pretty good at that. Yeah, and I think a lot of their kind of action-adventure films definitely veer into this sort of weird fantasy territory where they're not just straightforward adventure. Or even just the fantastic. Exactly. Um, and then the last F, my personal favorite, Foreign Yes! <laughs> yes! Not that there's a lot of that in Dr.
0: Fibes. There really isn't any. But, I mean, there's the nudie reel.
1: But hey... When, when that mirrored coffin closes, you don't know what's going on. Uh, I, I mean, yes,
0: I think it's kind of hard to get it up when you've embalmed yourself. But you don't know, do you? You know what? I'm going to try it this weekend. <laughs> Best of luck to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that probably seems like a little bit of a tangent, but I feel like it's important to know how something as insane
0: as Dr. Fibes was made how something ins- as insane as most of like the latter half of Vincent Price's career ended up. Yep, and all AIP films.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, AIP.
2: When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, Nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I will be there To brighten up even your darkest night You'll just call out his name And you know, wherever you are, he'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there. Yes, he will, you've got a friend. You, yes, and desert desert you, and take your soul if you let 'em. (laughs) But don't you let 'em. (laughs) You You just just fall out my name, and you know wherever.
0: Was the five movies? movies. Uh, I, I can say fives. I can't say abominable. I'm not sure why why you're uh, Elmer Fudd. I abominable. <laughs> I, I have trouble saying words. I don't know. So for those of you who have listened to our podcast and are still with us into what episode six now? I think I don't even know. Oh man, if it was episode six, we could have done episode six 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 because I doubt we're gonna make it. I that think far. Th- this is episode five. Ooh, well. We can't really do the satanic one because we have Vincent Price next. Yes, we can. Oh, well. So, for those of you who have stuck with us this far into our podcast, both in the series and this episode, God bless you. uh, We do a music portion. Don't bring God into this. Okay. Hail Satan. So, we do a music portion. And for this one, it was a little easier than last time because we had the Poe theme. So, we tried to find Poe music. But Dr. Fibes came out in 71. And the sequel came out in 72. So there was music that we could use that was, and I shudder saying this word, but goth adjacent. Yes. So there was music that, um, for me specifically, I wanted to touch on because we were moving out of the hippie era, psych rock, um, all of that, which was, it was what it was. I'm not a big fan of that era Me neither. but there were a lot of things happening on the periphery of that that were interesting and one of the first bands i wanted to mention was um, a band called Spyrogyra, which if you are familiar with freak folk or acid folk those were musical um, these were musical movements uh, one musical movement basically that grew out of the psychedelic rock scene of the late 70s and uh, the late 60s And the folk scene of the 60s. Um, So initially, the folk scene of the 60s was explicitly political. It was a project of, I don't want to say Marxists, but a lot of folk. The idea of folk was created by like a lot of New York intellectuals in the 60s who wanted to try and create a protest music to stir up revolution. But as the decade went on and people became attracted to the Greenwich Village scene and people became less interested in the politics and more in the drugs, you got this weird moment where um, you had a lot of deeply personal music from various artists in that era, Joan Baez or James Taylor, not particular pe- particularly artists I like Joan Baez I'm a fan of, but as you started seeing psychedelic rock and folk music crossing, you got acid folk, and... The record that came out that year that I was really interested in to touch on was the band Spyro Gyro, who released a record St. Radigan's, which if you've ever listened to Current 93 or a lot of Folk music, um, you can hear an influence of that in this record. They're all really interesting, like precursors to this musical movement that you see a decade later where artists like David Tibet pick it up and work with it again. Mind the question, please sustain. What was life like in the olden days? Long
2: ago, 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 ago before. Contractors to her Majesty's government, we were Dealers in honest trade! Ah. There was some mighty queer folk about. But most were honest workers and knew their place I was a skilled craftsman, you. The work was hard and the hours were long Ah, but there was a maiden And her name was Marjorie Long black hair she had like a gypsy
0: the, the second record I wanted to really highlight. So there are a number of different artists and we could go through a list, but I don't think that's really useful here. Um, we can just mention the artists and acts we wanted to talk about individually. The second one is goth music is always associated with electronics. Um, There's a lot of electronic music that people just think of when they immediately think of goth music, like EBM and industrial and all of that. The dark electronic music scene that we know of today wouldn't be anywhere if not for a bunch of weirdos in the late 60s and early 70s, people like Delia Derbyshire and other uh, artists who really just went out of their way to experiment with Moog synthesizers and other electronic equipment. And one of the artists who I really wanted to highlight was an artist named Mort Garson, who everyone knows for the Plantasia record, which is fine, but he did so much, I don't want to say better, because I think that's a great record, but so much weirder stuff. Um, He released a number of um, astrological-themed records under different signs. There's one under the moniker Z. Which is um, an adaptation of a late 60s softcore novel, which is literally just like 20 minutes of a woman moaning orgasmically over synthesizer music, which is great. What more do you need? But the one that came out in 71 uh, that I absolutely adore is a record he released under the moniker Lucifer as Black Mass for the record title. And it was capturing... So in 71, obviously, the Manson murders were big um Satanism Anton LaVey all of these things had filtered into pop culture so Mort Garson was capitalizing on that with this and when it was released it was seen as kind of a novelty record but in the years since it's picked up a cult following because it's such a beautifully weird record and I want to play the song the evil eye because this is the podcast the evil eye Garson also would go on to release another Weird Electronic record, which I am not going to mention just yet because I want to save it for a later episode, but he released another occult-themed one that is also wonderful, and you can probably find it after this episode anyway, but I would suggest looking up Garson and the music he released because it's all fantastic.
1: Yeah. Most of my picks are way more conventional sort of goth adjacent things. Like I hate that phrase. Well, you can't get rid of it now. I mean, I used it. So I know, uh, things like Alice Cooper's love it to death and schools out, which I think came out the same year. Yeah. Respectively 71 and 72, uh, David Bowie. Uh, you've got Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Again, Stardust back to
0: back. Really being like the beginning of, I think like goth, the goth image. Yeah. Or like what we think of as like the goth front person. Absolutely. I mean, there's also
1: sort of more distantly related glam like uh, T-Rex's Electric Warrior came out in 71. Transformer, Lou Reed. Totally, which is 72. Um, My personal favorite that is like connected to glam would be the Roxy music self-titled album, which is from
0: 72 because you have to pick Roxy music at everything you do.
1: I love Roxy music.
0: Uh, I'm fine with it. Talk.
1: Uh, but then the other thing that I think we should also mention is you also have sort of back to back black Sabbath records that I think are worth mentioning. So there's master of reality from 71 and volume four from 72,
0: Would you say Black
1: Sabbath is a goth
0: influence or more of a metal influence? I think it's both. In what ways for goth? I'm curious here. I mean, maybe just sort of visual
1: appeal, subject matter kind of themes. I mean, you have a fucking song
0: called Children of the Grave on Master of Reality. Fairies wear boots and the occult themes that run through them and oh fantasy so themes, many so. occult themes
1: yeah and i think it's like if we talked about hawkwind a couple episodes ago there's no reason not to also talk about sabbath i mean if you're thinking about the actual hey, you were the
0: one arguing fives isn't goth and now you're saying sabbath is
1: i'm not saying they're goth i just think they were an influence
0: okay they're goth adjacent They are goth adjacent. They're a goth precursor. Do you want to highlight any specific songs from either the Roxy Music Record or Black Sabbath?
1: Oh, Children of the Grave. with Roxy Music, I don't know if it's quite as obvious. I mean, I think something like Remake Remodel is definitely a goth precursor. Even Sea Breezes, where they have these songs that are sort of mournful ballads, and you could see a pretty clear connection between them and some of the music of maybe even the like mid-90s that has a similar quality. Like, to me, it's not a big jump that somebody would listen to early Roxy music and also listen to the Cocteau
0: Twins. I'll allow it. Thank you. So with that said, we have one thing left to do. We have to judge if the movie we watched, the movies, are goth or not. We're just going to mash them together for the sake of what we're doing here. Yeah, I think they qualify as goth. Wait, you agree? I do. I win. I <laughs> win. <laughs> So let's go through the rules just to prove how right I am.
1: Okay. Rule number one, embrace the darkness. The fucking plague of darkness is the entire end to the first movie. So yes, I would say
0: he embraces the darkness. But Fibes' entire outlook on life. He came back from the dead to avenge his dead wife.
1: Right. And rule number two, kill your fear. He killed so many people. He did, yes.
0: And he killed his fear of death to come back and kill people.
1: I think he just has no fear He's okay. basically superhuman. Like, if I was going to write comic books...
0: I mean, I think the man with no fear is already a moniker.
1: Sure, but I mean, the Fibes character, he overcomes the laws of physics, for example, to love to fucking
0: murder some people. will destroy anything.
1: It will. <laughs> love will allow you to destroy anything. Uh, and rule number three, live for death. Very much so.
0: He's literally alive so he can kill his wife's murderers
1: yeah and i think
0: we've sort of argued that he came back from the dead possibly or he like We're not even sure. if he's still alive he's his, his sole purpose in life is to live to see other the death of other people that's living for death literally speaking i can't argue with that so i am right dr fibes is a goth movie both of them not so much the second one because it ends with over, somewhere over the rainbow but and we'll the search for eternal life Well, I I mean, so there's a lot of like, there's a lot of, uh, Egyptian imagery appropriated into goth culture, the ankh, um, the eye with the, yeah, the eye of Horus, the eye of Horus. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. I think being anything connected to, or anything like an ancient Egyptian occultist automatically goth.
0: There you go. So I am right. And that's how this episode is going to end.
2: way.